This is our second week of the Advent season, and every year when we come into the Advent season, the goal is always to refocus on what the Advent, the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, brings into this world, brings into the world generally, yes, but brings into this world specifically for his people, for those of us who know him, who are saved by him, who've been changed by him, we receive these great, incredible gifts from him. And as I I said last week, it's good every year for us in the church to come back and refocus on this because this time of year can be really, really stressful and very, very busy if we are not intentional with it. This time of year can just be, okay, we're hitting December and now my, my calendar is going to be filled up and I feel all the pressure and I have all these obligations and there's going to be disappointments and hurt feelings and we can, we can kind of think, oh, another December. Or we can think, oh, it's December. It's Advent. It's a chance to worship the Lord and God offers us in this time opportunities for, for reflection, for worship, for spiritual growth even rest, I think, if we're intentional this time of year. And so what I'm hoping we do is we find this to be a helpful holiday for us, and we push back against those things that, as I said last week, can really cloud up this time of year for so many people. God's inviting us into something better than our culture could ever offer us, no matter what they're pushing on the latest commercials. God's intention for this time of year is so much greater. So if you have your Bible this morning, our text will be in Psalm 95, Psalm 95, if you want to turn there and have that before you. The title and theme of this second message in our helpful holiday sermon series is worship, worship, and we'll be in Psalm 95 in just a moment. In our very first Advent season we celebrated together when I came to be the pastor here, I I titled that series, A Season of Worship. And we talked through all of those weeks during that first year about how the season of Advent gives us opportunities to worship. We worship in celebrations and activities. We talked about how we can worship in community and gathering together and having meals. Those can be worshipful things. And of course, we worship in song. That's the way most of us are accustomed to thinking about worship as we think about singing and music. And we said in that initial series, my my first year here, all of the worship that we offer, which is a whole life of worship, not just one of those particular things, it's to be done with great joy because we have seen the light of Christ enter into this dark world at his advent, and we know he's coming again at his second advent, and that light then will fully overcome the darkness and all the despair, all the sin, all the pain, all the disappointments that we deal with will be done away at his second advent. Advent. So we rejoice and we have joy in our hearts and in our lives because he's come once and he's coming again. And those things really transform a life. So let's read Psalm 95 verses 1 to 7 this morning. And I want us to think again about worship in the Advent season that we're in right now. Psalm 95 starting in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made everything in it, and his hands formed the dry land. So, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
I have said this consistently since I entered into a ministry, and particularly since I've been a pastor, both in Springfield before I came here and then now here in Nelsonville, that I think most people tend to wrongly think of worship as synonymous with song, with singing or with music, something connected to that great experience that we just shared together, right, in this time of worship through song. We, we tend to just end our thinking of worship with that song time. And of course, we know that not all songs are inherently worshipful to God. That's evident to anyone who thinks about singing in general for just a few moments. There's a lot of songs that don't bring any glory to God inherently by their, their words, the lyrics that they provide. And that's true even in the Christmas holiday time, right? We, we can understand there are some songs that are really worshipful songs to the Lord that we sing. And there's others that, well, they don't really have much to do with Jesus at all, right? Jingle bell rock. All I want for Christmas is you, let it snow, Santa Claus is coming to town. Nothing to do with Jesus inherently in those songs, right? And they're fun to sing and they're great, but none of them are worship songs. They weren't created to be worship songs because not all songs are worshipful. That's why we won't sing any of those songs in our gathering here, right? So those of you who've been practicing your best Mariah Carey impressions, save it for home. That's great. Treat your spouse and your family members to it. It's awesome. We just won't sing that, that here, all right? But we also know that while not all songs are inherently worshipful, singing can be a great, beautiful, powerful act and expression of worship. When we sing to our God, when we sing of our God, of his nature, his works, his words, with our hearts fixed on him, then there's a beauty and a profound power to worshiping through song, Right? There's something moving about it. Like your heart has been moved in, in ways as you have sung or heard beautiful singing to the Lord, that act of worship. You've been moved in ways that nothing else really can, can do. There's a power and a beauty in worship with song. Song can be used in this way. That's why in Psalm 95, it begins with reference to this type of worship. Worship through singing, through musical abilities. When they says at verse 1 and 2, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. We understand as Christians who have this great gift given to us, God created us to worship in, in song. It's part of his design. It's a great, beautiful gift from the creator for us to use, to leverage, to be impacted by. And that's true for all of us, right? Whether you're as talented as Wendy is vocally or more like me, your singing is, is a little bit more in that second category, just the joyful noise <laughs> that the text says is acceptable. The Lord delights in, right? I can make a joyful noise to him. Which, wherever you fall on that spectrum, there's a power and a beauty in worshiping God through song. But it's, it's critical for us to know, and this is why I've said this over and over and over again, and I think I always will. We must know that real worship is far more than just singing songs. And I, I know that you've heard me say that if you've been here throughout these years that I've been pastoring here, because I repeatedly say this to be true. Worship is to be of our whole life, not just the moments that we sing songs together corporately or you sing songs alone in your car or home, right? Worship is more than just singing songs, but many people in many churches don't really understand or apply this truth to how they think about worship. On some level, people hold on to this idea that worship and song are synonymous. 
we see this, I think, very clearly, again, in many churches all around the world, you see this conflict come out in how people get hung up and upset about the song selections in a church gathering. If it isn't the songs that we like the most, it's not the style we like or the age of songs that we prefer or whatever else, people act and sometimes say that worship's being taken away from me. But that's not true at all. Real worship can and should, if we're genuine Christians who understand what worship is and what God intends for us in worship, it should take place even when the songs aren't our favorite songs or our preferences. Because worship is actually, the Bible tells us, more about heart posture than it is vocal prowess or musical preference. Worship happens when our hearts are focused upon God and are internally, our hearts are internally expressing gratitude, praise, faith, trust in God. When that's happening in our hearts, no matter what song it is that's being sung up here, then we can truly worship in those moments. For the person who loves God and longs to worship God, this can happen no matter the style, no matter our preferences. All of that is secondary to what's going on in our hearts. The content of a song, not the, pre- not the style, not the age, any of that, the content of the song matters far more than style for a true worshiper. If there's truth in a song, one line to latch on to, one refrain that stirs our hearts in those ways, we can worship. We can worship. To truly worship God requires knowledge and belief in the truth of God revealed to us in his word. And most songs that we're going to sing or going to hear, even if we don't like the style of it as much, will have some nugget of truth to latch onto, something about God that can stir up that truth in our hearts and lead us into real worship. Because despite the modern confusion on this, understanding clearly sincerity alone does not make worship acceptable. Genuine worship requires truth, not just sincerity or emotions. Many Muslims are very sincere in their worship of Allah. They practice it diligently. They believe in what they are doing as they offer the prayers, they go on pilgrimages, they give all these things. They're very sincere, but their worship is unacceptable to the true God because it's not founded in truth. They do not know the true living God. They do not come to him through Jesus Christ, the only way in truth and life, through the incarnate Son of God, who alone can bring salvation. They try to worship outside of him, and so whatever they do, no matter how sincere, is not acceptable worship to God. Many Mormons are very sincere in their worship too, very emotional at times in their worship as well. But no matter if they're singing Christmas songs like we will, singing Christian hymns that we may be familiar with, adopting much of our language, claiming even to be Christians like we are, that was their big push years ago in all their their campaigns, we have to understand they're not worshiping the real God. They view Jesus differently than the Bible reveals. And because it's not the truth, it's not real worship. If you're worshiping Jesus, the spirit brother of Satan, a lower God than the heavenly Father, as Mormons do, then no matter how sincere you are, no matter how emotional a service or a gathering may be, it's not genuine worship. It's not acceptable to the one true living God. To have real and genuine worship of the real and true God, we must come to him knowing what he's revealed about himself in his word and worship him from that knowledge that he has given us. 
In fact, this is even seen in Psalm 95, how it continues. So we're told to sing and to, to come and use this part of our human creativity to worship the Lord. But look at verses 3 to 5. For the Lord, and this is Yahweh here, as we, we talked about. I did the youth Sunday school this morning. We talked about this covenant name of God, the I am that he has revealed. He, this text says, is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made everything in it, and his hands formed the dry land. Get this, the one true God whom you and I have come to worship, come to exalt. The knowledge the Bible gives us of him is that he's the one true creator of all things, who's above all things, ruling all things. He alone is the one true God. He's the sovereign king of kings, Lord of lords. And knowing that, knowing who he is, reading the word of God should reveal to us this great God that leads us then into great worship of him. That's what verse 6 shows us. After reflecting on who God is in verses 3 to 5, look again. Then the psalmist says in verse 6, So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. As you think of the truth of who God is, as you have this right knowledge, it leads to worship. In a theological phrase, we would say genuine doxology flows from true theology. In more common language, I'd put it this way to you. Real worship of God comes from right knowledge of God. You have to know who he is, who he's revealed himself to be in his word to rightly worship him. And if you do, if you really know, if you really understand who he is, it will produce worship in you. Right knowledge of God is required because without right knowledge, there is no true worship of God. No matter how sincere, no matter how emotional, no matter what external form it may take. So thinking about this Advent season and thinking about all the tr Christmas traditions that we have and how they can point us to Christ if we understand them and use them, I'm reminded of the story of Boniface from the 7th or 8th century. Maybe you've heard the name of Boniface before, maybe not, and you'll learn something new today, and you can go home and press your kids, since they're, most of them not in here with us. You can weave this into your family devotion time the way that I did this week, explaining these stories to my own kids. Boniface was an English missionary monk who traveled across Europe, establishing churches and preaching the gospel message back in the 700s. His work impacted much of France and much of Germany, and indirectly, he's impacted the rest of the world through an object lesson he actually used while in Germany proclaiming the gospel to the pagan peoples there. So at one particular point in Boniface's ministry, he was traveling through Germany when he came upon a group of pagan worshipers who were very sincere, very devout, thinking that they would worship the Norse god Thor at this huge oak tree. They thought it was, they called it Thor's Oak. It was a mighty, powerful, large tree, and they had gathered around it. They would chant and sing and then offer sacrifices, human sacrifices. And Boniface, as he came upon the group, saw them with this young boy they were preparing to kill before the great Thor oak tree in order to worship him. And Boniface was outraged. He called out to the men, stop doing this. This is not worship of the real living God. And he, he said, this is not acceptable to the one true God. But they 
began to ignore him. No, no, we have this mighty oak tree. Look how big and strong and powerful this oak tree is. The, the god Thor who gave us this great oak is a great god. He must be worshipped. And so Boniface, by all accounts in church history, he was a bit of a, of a prickly <laughs> missionary. Uh, not, not necessarily the model for everyone going on the, the missions field. Uh, so he gets really worked up and upset and he sees an axe laying nearby. He grabs an axe and he goes to the oak tree and says, you think your god is so mighty and powerful? Watch this. He begins to chop down the tree. And amazingly, this, uh, this huge, towering, powerful oak topples over after just a few swings of his axe. And everyone's shocked because oak trees don't fall down after you hit it with an axe once or twice, right? So they regard this as a miraculous moment. This oak tree topples over, it hits the ground, and as it does, it reveals the inside of it is all rotted out, hollowed out. It didn't take much to crack it, and the weight of the tree caused it to fall over because there was nothing on the inside. And Bonavis, looking at that, the tree toppled over. There's no more mighty oak. You know, Thor is so great, you know, how did he not protect his great tree? Look, no, the inside of this tree is hollowed. It is decayed. It's rotten. That is what the worship you are about to offer is like. It looked good on the outside. It seemed powerful on the outside. But there's nothing to it on the inside. There's no sustenance there. So at this point, Boniface did what impacts you and I so much today. He looked about and he saw not another great, strong, towering tree in the village. He saw a small fir tree, an evergreen tree. And he pointed to this common tree that's all over the land of Germany. Nothing special about it, but he pointed to this simple tree and began to use it as an object lesson to give them knowledge of the one true God. He said, do you see this tree here, this evergreen tree? which in this German winter that we're in is still green, is still alive and thriving in these harsh circumstances. It is really the tree of life. And by looking at that tree, I would tell you there's a God who offers true life to those who follow him. Just as a fir tree can survive and thrive in the darkness and the harsh winters of Germany, the life that the real true God will offer to all who have faith in him is an eternal life that cannot be destroyed either. He then pointed to the triangular shape of that simple tree and said, the true God is not Thor or any of the other Norse deities you've heard of. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Revealed in the Bible, Boniface then preached of this God, how he had revealed himself, how he offers true life to all who would come unto him and what acceptable worship of the one true God looks like. And that day, according to church history, these men believed. They gave themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They built a chapel there. And the tradition was begun of bringing fir trees, these simple common trees, into the homes of Christians. And for some reason, which church history can't explain, the tradition began that they actually brought the trees in and would hang them upside down from the ceilings. Whereas we put them, you know, well, I don't know. Does anyone hang any tree upside down in the house? Okay, no. Most of us do it the opposite, right? But at the beginning, that's what it was. They would take these trees, they'd hang them upside down from the ceilings, and the Christian homes would be marked by these fir trees, and they'd be used to explain to those who came into their home. They believed in the God revealed in the Bible, pointed to by an evergreen tree, not anymore a mighty oak. So going all the way back to Boniface in the 700s is where we find the fir tree coming into Christianity as a symbol of the gospel used to proclaim Jesus Christ. Amazing, right? So if you didn't know, why do we have this tradition of Christmas trees, evergreen trees coming in our homes? This is where it dates back to for Christians and this great story. 
I'll give you a bonus one too. So you can, you can tell that story one night and then you can tell another story the next night and just blow your kids' minds that you know so much about Christmas and all these awesome things, all right? The way we came to get lights on that Christmas tree also comes from Christianity. Many years after Boniface, 700 years after Boniface, it was actually a man you hopefully have some more knowledge of now named Martin Luther, our great German reformer, who was so struck one evening as he was walking home during the Advent season on a cool, cold night. It was very clear out, and he was walking among these fir trees that are, again, all over Germany, a common tree. And as he was looking, he could see these stars and the lights twinkling behind the tree. So he's looking through the branches and just captivated by this beautiful sight of these light kind of twinkling in the trees. And so he gets home, and this is later in Luther's story, past the point that we have ever talked about. Luther has a family at this point, actually. And Luther gets home, and he just can't, can't quite describe how beautiful these lights in the trees were. And so he takes a, a candlestick, and he goes and ties it onto the branch of a tree and puts a candle on it and lights it and steps back and says, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Get some more candles, get some more candlesticks, and begins to fashion them across his tree, lighting these candles, and then they dim the lights in the home, not, not with a dimmer like we would. You know, They put out the fire in the house, and there it is on the tree, these lights glowing. And he says, oh, it's so beautiful. And he begins to explain to his family, this proclaims to those of us who know the gospel how beautiful the gospel is, right? And he begins to... Preach. Now, Luther's idea of how to light the Christmas tree is very, very unsafe. So I'm not, I'm not saying to do that, okay? Like, stick with those little Christmas tree lights, you know, the 25-foot strand that no matter how carefully you put it away, it's going to be tangled in a mess next year, right? Do the work. Get those on the tree, okay? No real candles on there. But Luther, doing what he could with what he had, began this tradition of lighting a Christmas tree, not for the sake of tradition, not just because it was so beautiful, but because he found he could use it as a great illustration to explain the Christian faith. So Luther spoke to everyone about the Christmas tree the way Boniface had. It's green color that lasts and does not fade reminds those of us who look upon it that God's love likewise will never fade. It is continuing, no matter the circumstances, the trials, no matter how bleak, how cold, how dark this life may seem, the love of God endures, just as the green of the evergreen tree continues. And the candles, Luther taught, spoke of the hope and beauty of the gospel, that when we understand the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we see beauty in what God has given to us in this message. Luther preached again and again, The darkness that's all around us, the darkness that we see is the despair and darkness of sin. But Jesus, as you look at the light on a Christmas tree, he is the light in the darkness. He is the one who can bring hope and joy and peace and true salvation to all who would look at him, the light, rather than the darkness which surrounds. His beauty, Luther would say, is all the greater the darker it is around us when you look at that light. So Luther and Boniface knew that external things like what they were using weren't weren't enough. They weren't interested in just creating traditions people would blindly adhere to. They saw opportunities in the Christmas tree and the lights on the tree to help people truly understand the gospel in a deeper way. They were object lessons leveraged by these Christians. And that's what I want for us. That's what I want for us to do in these holidays. When we have the trees, everybody have a tree up or have a tree you're going to get? Okay, Carolyn does. Great. Good job. Everybody else, I don't know. 
You've got trees, you've got lights, or you're going to see a tree and see some light. Wherever you go and do that, you now know a way to point a conversation towards Jesus Christ and the gospel that's been done for hundreds and hundreds of years. This can be a helpful holiday if we seize on these opportunities that we have. Understand, though, that again, doing traditions for the sake of traditions, even doing traditions now knowing where the tradition came from, isn't going to be enough. Worship, genuine worship, isn't about those external things. Just like it's not about songs alone, it's about a heart, a heart that comes to genuinely understand and believe and respond to the truth that we are celebrating. This has to be internal in us. The connection between knowledge and heart is crucial. With only one of those, if you just have cold knowledge of facts, okay, I know where the Christmas tree and the lights came from, and I can tell that story. Great. But that doesn't impact your heart. You don't really find your affection stirred for Christ when you look at the tree, when you look at the lights. It's not enough. Cold knowledge is not sufficient for worship, but neither is the other side, the person who has just great passion and excitement. I love Christmas. It's wonderful. If you're just excited but don't understand the reason behind this season, what these things point to, it's not enough for worship. It has to come from a heart that is stirred and led and motivated by right knowledge of God. So these verses that we've looked at in Psalm 95 help us see this. They see that worship can be a beautiful, great gift. We see how it's connected to knowledge. We see that this should all stir and motivate us, but the psalm actually doesn't end in in verse 7, and though it's tempting to, in the Christmas season, kind of end the message there, we're going to read the next four verses as well. Look at Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as, at the day, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, Listen to what God says in verse 10. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I, God speaking, swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Selah. (laughs) There the psalm ends with that statement. Now these four verses do not necessarily drip with Christmas cheer, do they? (laughs) But they are crucial verses for us to hear. Because God is not just looking at the external elements of our lives. If we attend church, if we offer prayers when people are around before we have a meal, if we sing songs, even songs that are filled with good theologically correct truth at the appropriate times, or if we present ourselves as good moral people on the outside, none of that is going to be enough because God is looking at the heart of each one of us. Not just the outside but the heart. And this is the warning we desperately need to hear this time of year especially because so much is pressing on us to live externally, to put on a persona, to do certain things, to go and see, to go experience, to do certain rituals, to be perceived a certain way. God is saying to us this Advent season who want to get more than the holiday offers us from the culture, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And, and look at these verses because they do something that will combat where our evil hearts will go very quickly if we let them. 
we think, of course, God is saying, don't harden your heart. Your heart. He's talking to those pagan people who just show up at Christmas time once a year, right? You know, he's saying, you don't harden your heart, repent today. No, actually, God's talking to the people who identify with him, who claim to be his people here. To us, he says this. He refers back to those events at Meribah and Massa in the wilderness. That's back to the Exodus events. Again, what we were looking at this morning in the book of Exodus leading up to what we spent 20 weeks talking about over this last year in a sermon series here. He's talking about how the people of Israel, people who were literally following God as he was leading them in that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire by night, right? They're literally following God called his people, delivered out of Egypt as his special people, it's to them. He's saying, do not harden your hearts. Because as they walked in the wilderness, literally following God as he was leading them along, that's what happened. Their hearts were hardened. They became disobedient. They went astray from the ways of God, from what he'd intended for their lives. So God is saying to those of us who claim to be his people, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And the warning of those four verses to those who would persistently, intentionally continue in rebellion and sin and distrust and disobedience of him is a severe warning that should give us pause to think. He tells us he loathed those people in the wilderness. He swore in wrath that they will not enter his rest. And we find that to be true. That generation dies for their disobedience, for having gone astray. They started out great. They looked like God's people to Egypt who saw them all leave and go out in the wilderness following the great cloud. But they died without entering the rest that God had intended for them. It's a sobering warning that should strike at all of our heart. It should move us when we hear about the seriousness of sin like this and rebellion, that we would be concerned to look at our own lives, to examine our own practices, our own feelings, our own uh, ways that we are going about this whole season. Are we just living externally or are we heeding the word of God and examining our hearts internally? Do we have in us disbelief, distrust, disobedience to the word of God. If we do, we must repent. We must turn from that. We must not let it harden our hearts, but rather let the refreshing love of God stir us up, revive us, and change us and transform us. Understand, my friend, sin is so dangerous to us. It's a poison that spreads and destroys if it's not removed by repentance and the grace of God applied to our lives. And again, I think this warning is timely and crucial. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because as we enter into this Advent season, we're filled with all kinds of external pressures, all kinds of plans, all kinds of opportunities all around us that are more pressing on us probably now than at any point else in the year. And the word of God would give us this call, this command that we would not fall off or put aside the practice of repentance. Do not wait to repent. Do not move farther away from God's love and grace towards his justice and wrath by failing to do the heart work that is necessary in us this season. 
Far too many people fall captive to this trap. Just this week, I was reading from a a Puritan, kind of a devotional reading that I had uh, just finished up this week. And towards the end of this book by a Puritan pastor named Dr. Thomas Watson, he wrote these words of pleading for the same thing that, that I'm pleading with you about. And they just moved my heart greatly as I read his words. He says this, it is dangerous to procrastinate repentance because the longer anyone goes on in sin, the harder they will find the work of repentance. Delay strengthens sin and hardens the heart and gives the devil fuller possession. A plant at first may be easily plucked up, but when it has spread its roots deep into the earth, even a whole team cannot move it. It is hard to remove sin once it has become rooted. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be Broken, And the longer a man freezes in sin, the harder it will be to have his heart broken. Oh, Watson writes, the dangers of delaying repentance. This text in Psalm 95 stresses for us this crucial need to not ignore our own hearts, not to get caught up in the externals, but to genuinely be people who day by day, moment by moment, even in the Christmas holiday season, look to our hearts Repent of our sins. Put aside and turn away from disbelief and distrust and disobedience so that we can truly and honestly and rightly worship God as we're called to do with hearts set upon him, hearts right with him. So do not delay repentance. Do not focus this time of year on the externals only. Do not let sin grow in and harden in your hearts. And again, I think this is a very practical word for the Advent season. Because friends, what God is looking for for each one of us this time of year is not the best decorations, not the best meals, not the person who gave the best gifts to others. He's looking for our hearts to be in postures of worship before him. That's what he's calling to us to do. No matter if nothing else gets done, he wants from us a humble and contrite heart. And we have powerful opportunities this time of year to work towards that if we see them and if we focus on them. So practically, again, my challenge is, my hope is, my prayer for you is that you will live well in this Advent season. That you will make time, as we talked about last week, to reflect upon the Word of God every day of this Advent time. That you'll take advantage of the opportunities that we have Specifically, as again, we talked about last week, that you and I would be people, whether we have young kids asking it all the time, or whether if just someone asks us that while we're out and about, uh, someone our own age or older or whatever, and when someone says, why are you doing this? Why are you celebrating this way? Why is this set up at your house? Or whatever else it may be that you would take the time to stop and focus and answer that question in a way that points to Jesus. You can use the tree, you can use the lights to do that. These these things can point to Jesus if we're intentional to do so. We can look at those Christmas trees in our own homes or in stores or anywhere else you see them in public places and be like Boniface, be like Luther, who used those as object lessons to point to God and explain who he is, what he said, what he's done, and the beauty of his gospel. 
And then we have the opportunity, as this psalm encourages us to do, to sing and make joyful noises to the Lord. And, and all of us, even those of us who are not good singers and aren't really going to be singing out most of the time during the year with other people, at Christmas we will. We'll join in the Christmas songs. We have great songs before us to help us worship. So sing these songs of Advent with hearts set upon Jesus. From the slow and longing refrains of, O come, O come, Emmanuel. To the upbeat, joyful songs, O come, all ye faithful, and joy to the world. When you sing, sing with a heart that is truly turned from sin and embrace the truth of who God is and what he has said, and with joy proclaim his gospel as you worship him. So as a resource and a help to you, a few years ago we put together, and I've, I've updated it a little bit with some additional songs, we put together an Advent worship playlist on our church YouTube channel. If you go to our website, nelsonvilleag.org slash advent, there's a link to that playlist on the right-hand side of that, uh, or I guess at the bottom of it, if you're on your mobile phone, it'll work from there too. You can go on YouTube and just search Nelsonville Assembly. Go to our page, and right there in the playlist, you'll see Advent Worship Resources. And there's about 15 great songs in there, and they're songs that you can sing and worship God with in your home during your Advent worship times. This is one of our traditions in our home, kind of the, the rhythm and structure that our kids expect. I mean, the first thing Julia said to me when she woke up today is, wait, it's church day? I said, yeah, it's church day. We're going to go worship the Lord. She's like, but... We still get to do Advent, right? Or Advent, as she pronounces it. We still get to do Advent, right? And I said, yes, we'll do our Advent worship this evening just like we do every other night during this season. What we do is we read a little text of scripture. We read a little devotional reading. We have some questions that we discuss that kind of get us thinking about the deeper meaning of this season. The kids get to color a little Advent page. They open up the window on the Advent Lego Advent calendars that we do, and they build their little figures. And It's a lot of fun. And then the last thing we do after we pray every single week is we sing some songs. And sometimes it's just one song, like it was last night. Just after one song, it's like, okay, we're good. Let's be done. And, you know, that's fine. We just ended right there. And other nights, it's like, we're going to sing three, four, five songs. We're just going to keep going, right? And sometimes I'll get the hymn book out. We'll sing a cappella. And most of the time, we're going to pull up this playlist. And the kids know because they can see the, the screens. They're familiar with them. Oh, I want We Three Kings. Or, oh, I want, oh, come all ye faithful. Or, joy to the world. And they'll point them out, and we'll sing whatever they want to sing. So use this as a tool. That's what it's there for. You can sing these incredible songs of worship to God, and if your heart understands who he is and your heart dwells upon the truths that are conveyed in them, you can worship God in these songs in your own home. You don't have to wait till we come here and Wendy leads us in the hymn here. This is a season of opportunities, my friends. And the one that's before us today, the opportunity for you and I right now in this place is that because of God's great love and kindness, we would take the opportunity to repent of our sins, to embrace knowing truths of who God is and what he has said and what he has done, that we could get our hearts in a place where whatever we go out of here to do next can be an act of worship to God. That our hearts can be postured in such a way that whether we're going to eat a meal or enjoy a hot drink or have a conversation with friends or family or go sing or whatever else you're planning to do this afternoon, rest, just rest, you can do that in a way that worships God if your heart is dwelling on the truths of who he is and what he said and what he has done. Everything we do, we can do for the glory of God and the worship of him. 
So as we ended last week, I'm going to invite uh, Wendy and the worship team to come, and we're just going to stand together, and we're going to sing another one of these great Christmas hymns. And my challenge to you today, my, my heart's imploring you today, don't just sing this externally. Don't, don't just go with the words, but make your heart a heart of worship. Maybe you need to let the first verse go by so you can repent of your own sins before you sing the words. But you have an opportunity to really genuinely worship the Lord right now. So do not harden your heart, but repent of your sins. Believe in him. Focus upon who he is and worship him as we sing this great song together. Would you stand with us and we'll prepare to worship the song I'm sure you know, the first Noel. Let me pray and then we will worship together. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. This wonderful season that we have, this opportunity to set aside four weeks out of our calendar every year to think about this big grand plan of redemption that you are unfolding from the very first pages of scripture to the last and to right now your story of grace and mercy and redemption Lord, we thank you for it, and we delight in knowing it, and we are moved as we reflect on who you are and what you have said and what you've done for us. May we leverage this time of year and find it helpful to our souls. May we be intentional moment by moment, day by day, to worship you, to praise you with hearts genuinely fixed upon you, hearts repentant of our sins, that we may find joy and hope and love and peace as we worship you in this Advent season. It's in your beautiful, powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everyone said together, amen. amen. Let's sing together. <laughs>